When I first saw the watchman, his back was toward me. I looked at him indifferently until he went into the church. I paid no more attention to him than I had to any other man who lounged through Washington Square that morning. And when I shut my window and turned back into my studio, I had forgotten him. Late in the afternoon, the day being warm, I raised the window again and leaned out to get a sniff of air. A man was standing in the courtyard of the church, and I noticed him again with as little interest as I had that morning. I looked across the square to where the fountain was playing, and then, with my mind filled with vague impressions of trees, asphalt drives, and the moving groups of nursemaids and holidaymakers, I started to walk back to my easel. As I turned, my listless glance included the man below in the churchyard. His face was toward me now, and with a perfectly involuntary movement I bent to see it. At the same moment he raised his head and looked at me. Instantly I thought of a coffin worm. Whatever it was about the man that repelled me I did not know, but the impression of a plump white grave worm was so intense and nauseating that I must have shown it in my expression, for he turned his puffy face away with a movement which made me think of a disturbed grub in a chestnut. HPPodcraft.com That is from the first chapter of Robert W. Chambers' The Yellow Sign, which is from his collection, The King in Yellow. That's right. And this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you're listening at HPPodcraft.com on our premium feed. That's right. It's premium. Mmm, delicious. <laughs> I've been looking forward to reading the story. Chad, I, I, I read this in high school, and I forgot mm. about it and how much I like it. It's a really cool story. That was actually the second paragraph of the story. From the first chapter. Yeah, it opens with a little uh, quote, which I believe is about the film Red Dawn. It's not. It's not? No. It just has the words Red and Dawn in it. Oh, okay. Well, it says, let the Red Dawn surmise what we shall do when this blue starlight dies and all is through. I'm actually going to assume that that is maybe an excerpt from the King in Yellow play. Could be, could be. And then the first paragraph, it's it, it's got a great opening sentence, which says there's so many things which are impossible to explain, <laughs> which is true, right? But his, the sentiment being that sometimes you'll hear a certain piece of music and it brings a, an image to your mind that isn't really directly related to what you're hearing. Here he says that the rush hour roar of Broadway makes him think of a woman named Sylvia studying a lizard in a Breton forest. And we get pretty quickly that this is a lost love of some kind. Yeah. But the, the real story kicks off in that second paragraph that we just heard read by our very own Andrew Lehman. Yeah, he's back. Back and ready for action. That's right. So that's our first time having Andrew on for these premium non-Lovecraft shows and uh, just as good as ever. So thanks, Andrew. You know, if you stay tuned next week, even though it's usually should be our week off, right? We're going to go ahead and put up a, a feature all about this period in time in which the story was written. Yep. Kind of a historical survey of it. And Andrew's going to come on and talk to us about the 1890s and the color yellow and all of the types of things that have been going on. Specifically some of the stuff that was referenced in The Repair of Reputations. That paragraph that we heard, it kind of describes the the villain meet cute. You know, the man in the churchyard and our protagonist, who we find out later is named Mr. Scott. Yeah, that's all they say. They don't say his first name ever. And it's a nice setup. Mr. Scott's an artist. And in the opening scene, he's painting a young model named Tessie. They have kind of a flirty conversation. She says something about, well, she had a dream. And he says, oh, oh you, you you dream about me? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a cool a cool thing happens first, though. As soon as he sees that guy in the courtyard, he goes back. Because he's painting a nude of her, I believe. Oh, yes. And so she's posing and, and he's doing the painting. But when he goes back to paint after having seen the man in the churchyard, the coloring, he spoils it right away. Yeah. It turns kind of a greenish color. And he thinks that it's probably the turpentine that, that he was using to kind of... Fix a mistake was tainted somehow with this green. 
Yeah, she says, do you think my flesh resembles green cheese when she sees it? <laughs> but everything he does to try and correct the discoloration just makes it worse and worse. And yeah. you know, he finally freaks out and throws his brushes through the canvas. Typical artist behavior, you know, kind yeah. of crazy, impassioned man. Right. And that really paints a picture of how this guy is. Right. And when he looks out the window again to see the man and Tessie kind of gets the idea that that's what set him off. I, I always imagine they, they mention him as being a young man, the man in the churchyard, actually. I'd always imagine him being a little older. I honestly just picture him as being a grub in a like a watchman of watchman's outfit with vaguely human face, or, or that guy on the cover of um, that Peter Jackson movie, Bad Taste. Oh, right, <laughs> yeah, just really fat in a way that is again was was taut over his flesh. That's kind of the way that yeah. That, that makes me think of what this guy looked like. When she looks out the window to see that what she's looking at, she says, is that the man you don't like? He does look fat and soft some way or other. So it's kind of interesting. It doesn't tell it doesn't really describe him. It just tries to give you that really decayed kind of puffy, you know, the way like fruit would decay. It just falls apart in your hands. We're back to that, uh, that flirty conversation, right? That you were talking right, about. Right. Yes. When she says, uh, I want to tell you about this dream that I had. Yeah. And the dream is basically she's uh, looking out this window and she sees a hearse coming down the road. Now, this is something I had to think about because this is the 1890s. It's a hearse. It's not a car. It's a, no, it's a wagon being pulled by a, by a horse and that there's a driver on there. And she sees that in the back of the hearse, there's the, the coffin and she thinks he's in the coffin. Mr. Scott is. Now, she hears um, the bells of the church kind of ticking off the time because she can't sleep. It's 10 and then it's mm-hmm. 11. This is a dream that she had the winter before. And then after midnight, she thinks I must have fallen asleep because I didn't hear the bells anymore. So it's definitely in the witching hour when this happens. When she looks out the window, there's that carriage, but it, it, there's nobody else around. It paints a really interesting, like desolate picture. And slowly the carriage approaches. But the thing that she says about him being in the coffin is she says, you were in there, but you were not dead. Yeah. And she didn't see him, but she knew he was there. Right. Very dreamlike description. Very, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Where, where things are, they don't quite make sense, but you just intuitively know things that are going on in the dream. Mm-hmm. Well, she finally gets a look at this guy in the courtyard and it kind of freaks her out because the guy, this watchman, the corpulent watchman is the driver of the wagon. She, she kind of lets out a little squeal when she looks down again because he must be looking up at them. And She says that's him, definitely. His face was white and soft and it looked as if it had been dead a long time. <laughs> <laughs> he brushes her off. He says, you, you know, you've been posing all day and you've been going out all night. You know, you're burning the candle at both ends, going down <laughs> to Coney Island, eating too much lobster salad, you know. <laughs> and he says, hey, it's possible this guy's a hearse driver, but, you know, maybe you saw him and that's why he was in the dream. Yeah. He explains it away the way anybody would, you mm-hmm. know. But it kind of sticks in her craw that she's not believing him because she's had this dream a few times. Yeah. She had it in the winter. She had it in, another time in March. And then she even says, I had that dream last night. It was raining. And when I woke up, I was standing at the window and I was drenched. So it's very much in her mind. And he's kind of blowing her off. So she says, you know, good night, Mr. Scott. And she leaves. And that ends chapter one. Chapter two brings my favorite character into the mix, Thomas, <laughs> who is the uh, the frightened Cockney serving man, which is like my favorite. There's a good, there's a great frightened Cockney servant in in Dracula, the top oh, Browning. Right. That's right. Like, They're all crazy, you know. <laughs> Just I don't know. I like that character so much. But Thomas shows up the next morning, and and he's bringing. I think what what does he do exactly? He's the bellboy, right? He's a, so yeah. He brings up the paper for Mr. Scott and tells him, "Hey, the church next door has been sold," which was an interesting detail because it doesn't really pay off necessarily in the story. But no, something's going on with that church next door, and Scott's kind of happy about it because the minister over there has an annoying way of delivering sermons and. The organist is kind of bad. He's hoping they do something better with it. Thomas thinks that maybe they're going to 
turn it into apartments or something like that. Studios, he yeah. says. Yeah, studios specifically. Yeah. He says, maybe that Night Watchman will finally be out of there, too. And he's like, oh, what, what do you know about that Night Watchman? Thomas has seen this Watchman before. And in fact, he had some kind of altercation with him once, which in his conversation with Mr. Scott, he relates a little bit of detail. He says, one night coming home with Airy, the other English boy, I sees him a sitting there on them steps. We had Molly and Jen with us, sir, the two girls on the tray service, and he looks so insulting at us that I up and says, What you looking at, you fat slug? Beg pardon, sir, but that's how I says, sir. Then he don't say nothing, and I says, Come out and I'll punch that puddin' head. Then I opens the gate and goes in, but he don't say nothing, only looks insulting like. Then I hits him one, but, ugh, his head was that cold and mushy, it'd sicken you to touch him. Scott asks him, after he relates this, well, what did the guy do? And Thomas is really kind of embarrassed about what happened. Yeah. Because he's like, well, we didn't do anything. I just grabbed my girl and all of us ran away. <laughs> and he's like, well, wait, why, why did you run away? Yeah, especially, I mean, Thomas was in the military and, yeah. and you know, he he's reluctant to say why because he's afraid of being laughed at. I think there's some, he said three years in America had not only modified his cognitive dialect, but given him the American's fear of ridicule. <laughs> So things must have changed since when this was written, because I didn't know Americans had a fear of ridicule. <laughs> Me neither. Okay. They, they look like idiots most of the time, myself included. So, But um, when he says, you know, you laugh at me, he, he finally tells him what he what happened. He says, well, sir, it's God's truth that when I hit him, he grabbed me wrist, sir. And when I twisted his soft, mushy fist, one of his fingers come off in me hand. Whoa. <laughs> It's so disgusting. <laughs> Just came off. <laughs> uh, and in fact, when Lovecraft talks about the story in supernatural horror and literature, he specifically quotes that section. And right after the story gets related to Mr. Scott, there's that dun-dun-dun moment. When Thomas had gone, I went to the window. The man stood beside the church railing with both hands on the gate, but I hastily retreated to my easel again, sickened and horrified, for I saw that the middle finger of his right hand was missing. Ah. Yeah, so Thomas isn't full of it. He actually did pull the guy's finger off. Really weird. But it's not, he didn't say he pulled it off. He said it came off. It came off, right. Good, oh. good point. About this point, uh, Tessie comes back in and she's, uh, he kind of asks her about her night because, you know, her, her, you know, who she was out with a little bit snoopy. It kind of shows that he might be a little bit interested in her. Yeah. And she goes, oh, just, just my friend. But then she says this weird thing. She said uh, that she's got a mash. Yeah, she made a mash. With the and I was like, what the heck? What does mashing mean? I thought maybe it was like um, bootlegging gin or something like that. <laughs> no, I think it just means they hooked up a little bit. No, it just means a crush. A crush. If you've got a if you've got a crush on somebody, you're mashing on them. It was just another phrase. I, I had to look it up. Oh, okay. So you have information. It, it changes the whole tone of the conversation. That of yeah. If if she's hooking up with guys, that's one thing. But if she's just likes this fella, right? And this is her friend's brother, I believe. Ed is his name. He's a real nice guy, and and. Mr. Scott thinks, well, you know, she deserves a nice guy because she's a nice girl. And as much as I, he's kind of jealous about it, she shouldn't be with him because he, he considers himself a man of no scruples. But you could tell he's kind of jealous about the whole thing. Yeah. I think it might be even that jealousy that prompts him to then tell her about the dream that he had the night before. It's like he doesn't like where the conversation's going. So <laughs> he says it was foolish and thought, thoughtless of him to relate this to her. But you know how little tact the average painter has. <laughs> it's... <laughs> No, I don't, actually. I don't, I don't either. I think they, they vary in temperament. But um, he tells her that he had a dream similar to hers, only it was from the other perspective. He, right. He fell asleep. He heard the midnight bells. He's in a glass coffin, and he could see right. at the top of it, but he couldn't move, and he, he couldn't open open up, and he couldn't shout out. He was helpless in there. But he could look around, and he looked off to the side, and you could see as he was going down the street, 
this this hearse that he was in, you could see Tessie looking out the window, sad. He hears the window sash look up, and then there she is looking at him, and they pass by, and they stop for a while, and then when he looks up, he sees the hearse driver looking down at him. Pretty eerie that it's the same dream she had, but from his perspective. And it reminded me a lot of this scene from uh, Vampire. Okay, yeah. With the Y. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, it's I do. It's a, a 1932 si- film. Yeah, it's... Is it silent? Well, it's it's mostly silent, but there is some There's sound. limited dialogue and sound in it. Yeah. yeah, it's by Carl Theodore Dreyer. I wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy, so I actually looked up the scene and found it. So I'll put it in our show notes. But it's a guy in a coffin, awake, although no, to everybody else it appears that he's dead and he's in a carriage and he's being drawn along and he can kind of see the scenery going by as he's oh, in this wow. funeral procession. And at one point, the coachman, who looks kind of like Mark Twain or something like that, comes over and looks down at him and it's... It really is the same scene out of the story. Hmm. So I'll put the clip up. Folks should check it out. That yeah, movie is really cool movie. It's got a really lot of creepy. interesting stuff. And in doesn't it. the the main guy kind of look like Lovecraft? That was what I was going to say. It looks like H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft in a coffin being drawn along. I mean, it really does. It's, he looks it's a lot like H.P. Lovecraft, yeah. When he relates this dream to Tessie, it upsets her, right? Yeah, she gets really upset. And he, and he realizes, oh, man, I... Stupid artist, me being insensitive. And he tries to go, well, you know, hey, don't be upset. This is, I, I just want to show you how much of an influence you have on me. Like you told me this dream and the next night I dreamt about the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, don't be upset or anything like that or afraid. And she goes, well, I'm not afraid for myself. And he goes, <laughs> very, gets, gets very kind of smoldery here at this point. Mm-hmm. Then what's the matter? Are you afraid? Yes. Not for myself. <laughs> for me then? I demanded gaily. For you, she murmured in a voice almost inaudible. I, I care for you. Yeah. <laughs> and it gets a little, little hot here. And then he has this moment. This is really interesting um, because you don't get this stuff with Lovecraft at all. No, like, <laughs> you do not. <laughs> it's so cool because I'm so used to reading Lovecraft stuff. But mm-hmm. you get in his head for the next couple paragraphs. He kind of going, okay, this is what I should have done. I should have laughed it off or I should have said that, you know, oh, maybe... That's very kind of you. You're a very sweet girl. Don't don't worry about it. But what he does is he plants one on her. Yeah, kisses her on the mouth. Yeah. Good job, I say. It's pretty nice. And, and you know, it's funny. Um, when Lovecraft wrote about this story in supernatural horror and literature, it was actually a late addition to, I think, his, maybe his first draft of it mm-hmm. that, that he did in the 20s. But it had already there was already a carbon of it. And so he put these paragraphs where he talks about this in a couple of extra cards. He has a note there that says, you know, these are some last minute additions this book that I just read. I added a couple of paragraphs about Robert Chambers. He wrote some really good weird fiction. He says, can you believe it? <laughs> because he this what just happened there in that moment, I think, is a lot Closer to what Chambers is yeah. better known for, yeah. which is these kind of romance stories. But I like it. I, think I do cool. too. I do too. I yeah. thought it was great. And it, what's going on in this in his head? I mean, I, I really recommend reading this story, so I don't want to go in it mm-hmm. line by line. But it's just him trying to be a good guy because he knows he's an artist. You know, he's not the kind yeah. of guy that commits to a woman or any one woman at any particular time. And and he's just in his head and he's got all these problems. And she's a really nice sweet girl and she deserves a nice boy. And But he's still... Yeah, he's drawn still, to her. Yeah. He's still into her. And and also there's some sense of history. He, there was a this woman that he was in love with at one point who we don't ever find out what happened. No. But, and he's waited for her to come back to him, but she has not. He's he's a broken man. He's the kind of man a woman would love. Right. He's got that uh, sense of pain and loss about him. Yeah, it makes exactly. him so attractive to the young lady. Well, that night he goes out, has a normal night with a friend of his, Miss Carmichael. Mm-hmm. Um, they go, you know, do up New York and he's pondering what he should do with Tessie. Yeah. Since he's unsuited to marriage and uh, on his way home, 
He again passes the churchyard and sees the man standing on the steps. In spite of myself, a chill crept over me at the sight of the white, puffy face, and I hastened to pass. Then he said something which might have been addressed to me or might merely have been a mutter to himself, but a sudden furious anger flamed up within me that such a creature should address me. For an instant I felt like wheeling about and smashing my stick over his head, but I walked on and entering the Hamilton went to my apartment. For some time I tossed about the bed trying to get the sound of his voice out of my ears but could not. It filled my head, that muttering sound like thick, oily smoke from a fat-rendering vat or an odor of noisome decay. And as I lay and tossed about, the voice in my ears seemed more distinct and I began to understand the words he had muttered. They came to me slowly, as if I had forgotten them, and at last I could make some sense out of the sounds. It was this. Have you found the yellow sign? Have you found the yellow sign? Have you found the yellow sign? So creepy. It's very creepy. And of course, he doesn't know what he's talking about. No. And it takes him some time to figure out even what he said. Yeah. And that, um, that makes it really cool to me because if he understood him at that moment, he could have said something like, what did you say? Or why are you saying that? Yeah. Or, but it, he's helpless now to, to know what that is, unless he wants to go down and go talk to that watchman. But that's, that's a huge test. You know, this is another interesting thing, how this creepy guy inspires violence in people. Yeah. You know, yeah, like you're right. That's Thomas, true. Thomas, well, Thomas did punch him just because mm-hmm. he looked at him funny. And, when this, when he muttered something under his breath, he couldn't even know if it was at him. It still made him so furious. Yeah, he got really angry. That's a kind of it's a very different thing from Lovecraft because usually people faint or you know they they get creeped out or something like. But but a violent reaction to it, and, and somehow that makes it more creepy to me. Yeah, like there's sort of a, a primal reaction to it. Yeah, this guy shouldn't even exist. Yes, yeah, like something he, just offensive he wants to about destroy it. it. You know, punish it. Yeah, uh, uh, just really great. Like. As as weird fiction goes, and I think this story really captures that weird feeling that Lovecraft talks about in supernatural mm. horror literature. That night, uh, Mr. Scott has the same dream again, and the next day Tessie comes over. But she's a little more shy now about posing nude since they're making a mash. <laughs> so uh, he gives her this costume to wear and says, it's cool, wear this and I'll paint you that way. He also gives her a little cross as a present. They're both Catholic. Mm-hmm. And um, she gives him something in return, which is this little box. And when he opens it up and the pink cotton inside, there's this clasp, a black onyx, and it's inlaid with a symbol or letter in gold. I don't, um, I don't know. It's not Arabic or Chinese. And as he says, as he found afterwards, it doesn't belong to any human script. And he's mad at her for buying him something. But she says, no, no, I, I didn't buy it. I found it one day. While I was coming home from the aquarium, I advertised to see if anybody missing it, and they weren't. So, you know, I've just had it. And that was, of course, last winter, the day she had that first dream about the hearse. We can guess that this is the yellow sign. Don't know why she has it or found it or what is going on at all. <laughs> uh, and that's another thing about the about this story. Before, I don't want to jump the gun too much, but we don't uh-huh. ever really know what the hell's going on. Yeah. It's it's still a mystery and I think that's what's great about it and that's why it's extra creepy is because it's it's not really explained. But again, I'm jumping. Let's 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 keep going. We're in sure. chapter 3. It goes into the third chapter um and there's a disastrous thing happens for Mr. Scott. He oh. sprains both of his wrists. <laughs> it's some kind of moving canvas accident. So he can't 
paint. There's a great sentence there. It says he sits down to smoke and twiddle his thumbs with rage. <laughs> I really want to see what that looks like. <laughs> twiddle these things. But he's so bored. He's looking through his own library for something to read, maybe. But he knows all the volumes. He's read everything. And he knows them by color. But suddenly there's one high up that he doesn't recognize. It's yellow. It looks like it was maybe bound in snakeskin. He calls Tessie in and she grabs it down for him. And he's like, well, what is it? She says, it's the king in yellow. I know this is interesting here because he knows about it. Yeah. And not only does he know about it, he, he knows the, the reputation of it. And he said, I would never have bought it. I would never have picked it up. I don't know how it got there. And he knows about the awful tragedy that young Castain suffered mm-hmm. because he had and it's part of the reason that he never read it. So yeah. it's a reference to the repair of reputations. Yeah. And now that to me, I was assuming that this story is set in the present day, i.e., you know, 1890s. 1890s. There's no reference to any of the futuristic stuff that Castain was talking about in the repair of reputation. So to me, this kind of substantiates that that was all crazy stuff. And I believe in, in some of the other stories, they talk about historical things happening at periods that make it so that it was the 1890s and not yeah. the 1920s. But so cool that he references the repair of reputation, that they're connected. It's more than just the play that connects these stories. He actually knew who this guy was. Yeah. Well, um, Tessie, unfortunately, doesn't really understand the significance of this book. She doesn't have a healthy fear of it, and she steals away with it somewhere, and he chases after her, but she kind of slips away from him. Tessie, I cried, entering the library. Listen, I'm serious. Put that book away. I do not wish you to open it. The library was empty. I went into both drawing rooms, then into the bedrooms, laundry, kitchen, and finally returned to the library and began a systematic search. She had hidden herself so well that it was half an hour later when I discovered her, crouching white and silent by the latticed window in the storeroom above. At the first glance, I saw she had been punished for her foolishness. The king in yellow lay at her feet, but the book was open at the second part. I looked at Tessie and saw it was too late. She had opened the king in yellow. Then I took her by the hand and led her into the studio. She seemed dazed, and when I told her to lie down on the sofa, she obeyed me without a word. After a while, she closed her eyes, and her breathing became regular and deep, but I could not determine whether or not she slept. For a long while, I sat silently beside her, but she neither stirred nor spoke. And at last I rose, and entering the unused storeroom, took the book in my least injured hand. It seemed heavy as lead, but I carried it into the studio again, and sitting down on the rug beside the sofa, opened it and read it through from beginning to end. When, faint with excess of my emotions, I dropped the volume and leaned wearily back against the sofa, Tessie opened her eyes and looked at me. Things get very bad here. I mean, the the two of them kind of go into this horrified trance where for the rest of the story, they just sit and talk about the play, the horror of it, whatever primal thing and all. Yeah, not just the horror, but the beauty and the the perfectness of it and the simplicity and the... uh, It just speaks these weird truths, but then they also talk about uh, the king and the pallid mask and they talk about Mm -hmm. Hester and Castilda. And it's real. it's, It's almost like... I feel like they turn into heroin addicts or something and they just totally yeah it's like they got that big hit of this and now they're just strung out kind of murmuring to each other yeah he says even a point that they stop even talking that they somehow got uh, some kind of psychic link and they just think questions and answers uh, to one another and it's yeah. it's just so horrible and and sad and such an accident like he, she didn't know what she was doing and then he voluntarily went in after her 
Yeah, so he could know what, what she had just gone through. The shadows start growing. It gets darker, and in the far distant streets, they start to hear this sound, which is the crunching of wheels nearer and nearer. Mm-hmm. It's that hearse. Yeah. It's that carriage. He actually even drags himself to the window and sees it coming, black-plumed hearse. Mm-hmm. And then he hears the gate below open and shut. And he bolts up the room, but he says he knows no bolts, no locks could keep that creature out who is coming for the yellow sign. So that the coachman is... He wants that clasp that he has. Yeah. He hears him moving along the hall and the bolts are rotting at his touch, which I thought was a great detail. Nothing can keep him out when he touches no. these bolts. They just desiccate immediately. He doesn't see him. No. He j- the first time he knows he's in the room is when he feels his soft grasp and yeah. he struggles with him. He tries to get away from him, but he can't. And then he grabs the, the onyx clasp from him and he takes it. And then he hears Tessie cry and she falls to the ground yeah he says her spirit fled yeah seemingly even died she just died from this and i think the coachman hit him knocked him down first struck him full in the face yes he says i longed to follow her for i knew that the king in yellow had opened his tattered mantle and there was only god to cry to now it's pretty pretty trippy scene there yeah it's very surreal and then it's kind of that lovecraftian type where he's like as i lie here writing so all of this has been kind of a retelling Mm -hmm. of what happened he can see the doctor so we're in the future a little bit here where this is some doctors come and he's gathering up all of his things. And he says, uh, They will be very curious to know the tragedy. They of the outside world who write books and print millions of newspapers. But I shall write no more. And the father confessor will seal my last words with the seal of sanctity when his holy office is done. They of the outside world may send their creatures into wrecked homes and death-spitten firesides, and their newspapers will batten on blood and tears. But with me, their spies must halt before the confessional. They know that Tessie is dead and that I am dying. They know how the people in the house, aroused by an infernal scream, rushed into my room and found one living and two dead. But they do not know what I shall tell them now. They do not know that the doctor said as he pointed to a horrible decomposed heap on the floor, the livid corpse of the watchman from the church. I have no theory, no explanation. That man must have been dead for months. I think I am dying. I wish the priest would... And that's it. That's it. That's the end of the story, right mid-sentence. I wish the priest would give me a hug. <laughs> Could be that. I wish the priest would give me a hug. I'm sure that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, he sounds like he needs a hug. Yeah. You know what I remembered when I was looking through this is that um, the history of the Necronomicon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Lovecraft hadn't read this stuff until well after he created the Necronomicon. Yeah. So while this King in Yellow play is somewhat of an influence on him, uh, it wasn't what caused him to come up with the Necronomicon, even though they share quite a bit in common. He actually wrote in that short fragment that we read, The History of the Necronomicon, he kind of reverse engineers it in one of the last sentences where he says, the, the book is rigidly suppressed by the authorities of most countries and by all branches of organized ecclesiasticism. Reading leads to terrible consequences. It was from rumors of this book, of which relatively few of the general public know, that R.W. Chambers is said to have derived the idea of his early novel, <laughs> The King in Yellow. <laughs> So it's pretty funny that he does that. Most people know about the Necronomicon and the King in Yellow is sort of lost to antiquity. One thing about this story, too, that when they read the book, it almost has this feeling of of the ring. Yeah. You remember like where it's like once you do this thing, this very innocent thing that it you're 
you're screwed. You're damned. You know, like she just read a book. Like what's, what's the harm in reading the book? What's the big deal? Or what's the harm in watching this videotape? And it's that same kind of like, oh no, I, right. I just, my innocence has damned me to this horrible end. Eating the forbidden fruit, so to speak. But, but here it's a, it's a visual thing or it's a play or it's a, something like that. So this story, I, I am not sure, but I was reading this great book called uh, Encyclopedia of Urban Legends. I'm mm-hmm. a huge fan of urban legend and, and that kind of storytelling and that kind of story structure. It's written by Jan Harold Brunvand, who's kind of an expert in this field and has been for quite some time. And he had an entry in it called The Phantom Coachman. It says, uh, this popular supernatural legend of the 1940s and 50s incorporated the dream warning motif that is a nightmare comes true. Although the legend has not been reported by folklore since the 1950s, its appearance in a 1961 Twilight Zone TV episode kept the story alive as a subject for conversation. Oh. And then he's got the first reported thing that he could find of this urban legend, which was in, uh, written by an Indiana University student in 1945 and published in a journal called Hoosier Folklore. And it says this story was told to me by a middle-aged woman. She said, one of my friends in New York City, it's always a friend of a friend in these stories, by the way. One of my friends in New York City had this horrible dream one night. She dreamed she was in the downtown section of New York when suddenly she noticed a funeral procession passing by. It was one of the longest she had ever seen. She particularly noticed the driver of the hearse. He was a tall, rather sharp-featured man who sat very erect in his seat. The next morning when she was preparing to go downtown to shop, she recalled the dream she had had the past night. The image of the driver came clearly into her mind once again, and she continued to think of him as she went to do her shopping. She entered a department store and was ready to step into the elevator when she noticed the operator. He was a tall, sharp-featured man resembling the man in her dream. It startled her, and she hurried to leave the elevator just as the door was closing. The elevator reached the third floor when she heard a screeching sound ending with a crash. The elevator had fallen and everyone had been killed. What isn't that the the room for, room for one more? Isn't that room for one more is is also how it's known often, uh, because in some versions of the legend, there's a cab in some of them, a cab driver that does this, or uh, right. but uh, mostly it was an elevator where he says, "Hey, room for one more," and then the person leaves and avoids that final destination kind of thing. <laughs> right. But I thought it was pretty interesting that he was citing it as um, from the a 40s and 50s urban legend. Yeah, and this is obviously the first thing I thought. Yeah, was this? So I emailed him. And and said, uh, hey, this is actually a variation of it in Robert Chambers' 1890s short story collection. And he wrote me back, which people don't normally do. This was in 2003. He said, Mr. Pfeiffer, thanks for your note. I also have information about the Phantom Coachman Coachman plot used in a 1940s British film called Dead of Night, uh, which I've never heard of. But I had not heard of the much earlier Chambers version. I'll keep a copy of your note on file for use if I ever need to update my urban legend works. And then he said, frankly, though, I'm ready to leave the subject to others now that so much of the material circulates on the Internet instead of via oral tradition. Yeah. I had told him, actually, that his book was the I loved it as a toilet read, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought maybe I shouldn't say that. But then he wrote and said, I wish I could convince my publisher to use cover blurbs like the best toilet read I've ever encountered. (laughs) So he's a pretty had a pretty good sense of humor, too. It was really kind of him to write me back. I remember being really, really thrilled by that. That's that's a great story. Speaking of, um, well, 30s of the 1930s. Do you know that Raymond Chandler had a story called The King in Yellow? He was a fan of this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the story, the the narrator has read Robert Chambers book. The King of Yellow. Oh. And he uses the phrase to describe uh, one of one of the characters. So he makes reference to it in that story. And the story is named The King in Yellow. So oh, it came out cool. in 1938. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty neat. The King in Yellow and the Yellow Sign, I mean, they really are tied tightly to the Lovecraft mythos stuff, especially in those games. Yeah. They might as well be characters out of a Lovecraft thing. And you can see why. But I will say that there's a different character to these stories. Oh, uh, there's absolutely. a romantic element in both this and Repair of Reputations that you're not really going to find. 
in any of Lovecraft's work. I have to say that the, the way he captures insanity, uh, Chambers, is it's pretty outstanding mm -hmm. and it feels real. It feels very yeah. genuine and creepy and upsetting. Somebody had written in to say, you know, I'm glad you're only covering these two stories because I read some of the other ones in the collection and they're kind of <laughs> god awful. And I remember feeling that way as well when I when I first picked it up. Maybe not god awful, but they're just not they're not like this. They're not up to snuff. Well, they're just different. They're not really weird tales. And I think these two stories uh, are really the ones to read out of the collection and they are public domain. So you can go online and, and we'll link out to them and you can check them out. Yeah. In fact, if you have a Kindle, you can go to Amazon.com and download them for free. Everything's free. So that's going to be our coverage of the stories on Chambers' work. I don't think we'll probably be coming back to him, but it's hard to say. I want to thank Andrew Lehman for doing our reading today. Great job. If you want to tune in next week, we're going to have a wrap-up with Andrew, representing the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and talking a little bit about the events of the 1890s, things that were going on, things that might have influenced what Chambers was talking about, specifically in the repair of reputations, and uh, you know, just some information about the color yellow and why people might have been fascinated by this, uh, this motif. Uh, also, I want to tell people my Kickstarter is still going, but it's going strong. We're about... Uh 30, 35% somewhere around there uh, yes. with the Kickstarter. So it's it's coming along, but it still needs your support. Things have leveled off, which I hear happens with these Kickstarters. Once again, it's right. a graphic novel called Trans Reality. It's about the future and transhumanism and post-singularity stuff, which means, which we didn't really explain last time. No. It's about digitizing one's consciousness and being able to duplicate yourself and put yourself in different bodies and saving your memories and what kind of culture would you have if everybody could do this type of thing so if that stuff sounds interesting to you check out the kickstarter at least watch the video where i um hang out with myself so <laughs> yeah it's good stuff please everybody go and help fund this graphic novel because i want to read it and i guess that's all we've got we'll be back with the history discussion after that we're going to have the free show on hppodcraft.com where we're talking about uh, supernatural horror and literature a little more yep. and after that we're going to dive into the yellow wallpaper so lots of great stuff coming up if you know folks who are interested in this stuff and they haven't subscribed yet uh, we are still working out some of the kinks but they're working out pretty quickly now so uh, yeah. no fear come subscribe and, and and be part of the discussion and that's all we've got for this week I'm Chad Pfeiffer I'm Chris Lackey and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com ah!